This episode is sponsored by Tourism Ireland. Ireland is ready to welcome you back. World-class courses, celebrated links, spectacular scenery, rich culture, and the warmest of welcomes await. Now is the time to get back to the things that matter most. Now is the time for Ireland. Start planning your next golf vacation at ireland.com slash golf. Welcome back once again to the Lynx Golf Podcast. My name is Al Lunsford. I'm the digital editor for Lynx Magazine. And we are excited to welcome you back to another season of our podcast, season 11, episode overall 111, as my co-host who you'll hear in a second said beautiful symmetry there couldn't agree more with all the ones lined up perfectly for you we have a great episode for you today uh joining me today and joining me for the entirety of season 11 which we're excited to announce i have a co-host this season the whole way through he's going to be with us uh it's great for me and it's even better for you uh without further ado it's joe Passoff. You all know him well. Traveling Joe is going to be my podcast co-host. How you doing, Joseph? It's good to see you. Al, a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited about, well, season 11, episode 111, and then 112 and 113 and all those after that. Yes, and how I guess we'll end with uh, 111. We'll go up to like 123 in our 12 episodes. So you start with symmetry and you end with the chronological one, two, three. I, I mean, it just, it all adds up to something really special, I think. Joe, uh, the topic today we're going to cover uh, is uh, July 14th through 17th, the 150th Open and the 30th Open Championship at St. Andrews at the home of golf. Never too early to start talking about what a monumentous event that will be. And Joe, you were assigned to, to pin a piece. As this appeared in our spring issue and our upcoming summer issue of Lynx, uh, breaking down 10 of the greatest moments of the Open Championship, specifically at St. Andrews. Uh, so over those 29 times so far, what we've seen has been nothing short of magnificent. A uh, lot of magic. It's maybe the most recognized golf course in the world. Uh, So we covered 10 of the greatest moments. Joe, I know that you have been to St. Andrews a time or two. Uh, Before we get into the list, I'd love to hear about your experience there. And you've been to a couple of tournaments there, including an open championship. So uh, over the years, what's your relationship with with St. Andrews? Well, Al, you know, we can debate whether the old course at St. Andrews is the best course in the world, whether it's top five, whether it's top 10, wherever it falls. What is undebatable without question is that the old course at St. Andrews is the most historic golf course on the planet Earth. It is the home of golf. It was where golf was invented. And so when you fall in love with golf, you know, as we all did at some point as, as young people, and you say to yourself, okay, if I'm going to have a life in golf, you have to have an encounter with St. Andrews. If you're lucky enough, you have multiple encounters with St. Andrews, because I love my history, all history, and just soak it up. But when you combine it with golf, you look at St. Andrews and say, 
that's it. This is the pinnacle. And anything important, anything interesting, no matter what happens at St. Andrews, it is pivotal in the history of golf. So yes, I knew that I had to find my way over to St. Andrews at some point, but Al, it happened in my first full year in the business. And an editor that I uh, was working with at a mag- at another magazine called Golf Illustrated uh, back in 1992, we decided to, uh, to go cover the Solheim Cup in Edinburgh, or Edinburgh, as uh, the folks say. And before that competition started, we did a side trip to St. Andrews. And through a friend uh, of a friend who was a member of the RNA, got a tea time on the old course, got to play the old course, and then got to tour the RNA clubhouse, which was an incredible experience in and of itself. I know you've talked about clubhouses, you know, in the past, maybe we'll talk some more again today, but, you know, I practically hyperventilated on the first tee. It was just that exciting to be standing there knowing I was going to tee off where all of these legends uh, had played and, and most of them had won. So that's how my St. Andrews uh, adventure started, basically, was that first trip in 1992. Joe, I know you've been to, going back to the Open, I know you've been to one Open, and that Open was at St. Andrews. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that experience? You know, Al, we've uh, chatted about a little while ago. You know, I covered a bunch of major championships. You know, I mean, 17 Masters and and uh, nearly the equal number of U.S. Opens, uh, seven or eight Ryder Cups. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, it was just more challenging uh, to to get over to Scotland or England uh, and, hey, Northern Ireland's in the mix again now um, to cover one of the Opens. So I knew it was something that I wanted to do and uh, finally was able to make that happen in 2010. So... My Open Championship experience is, is limited, uh, other than watching them since the 1970s on television. But uh, that one Open in 2010 was pretty special in its own right. And that's going to make an appearance here on our list as a teaser for that. So be on the lookout or keep your ears open as we, we get through this list for the 2010 Open Championship uh, and one of our 10 greatest open moments at St. Andrews. All right, Joe, I think it's time we should get into it. Uh, And let me first say that that this series that we did, a two-part series again from our spring and summer issue, was presented by our friends at TaylorMade. Thank you to them for making this happen. They're entering a new age, the Carbonwood age for TaylorMade. Everyone's seen that red-faced driver that they have that a lot of pros are using and we're entering a new age of the Open as we go into the 150th playing. Thank you again to TaylorMade for putting Joe on the beat and making this all possible. So we're going to go in chronological order, as I said. Uh, we have 10 moments from 10 different years, 10 different Opens at St. Andrews. Interestingly enough, you may think you know a lot of good winners on the list of Open champions at St. Andrews. Uh, Tiger Woods, John Daly, Nick Faldo, Seve, Jack, going even back further, Sam Snead, Bobby Jones, James Braid, J.H. Taylor. However, not every moment on this list comes from a winner, which I thought was an interesting 
way to approach this and write based on the, the answers that we have here because of their significance to future opens, their significance in the time that they happened. Uh, it was a big, big deal in the history of this championship. So the first direction we're going to take, we're going to take you back to 1927 and one amateur playing in the open by the name of Bobby Jones. Well, okay. Bobby Jones is associated with St. Andrews in such an incredible way. And I, I don't want to use that word lightly, but when you think about his first appearance at St. Andrews, and this was 1921 during the Open, and there are different versions of this story, but essentially he just was so upset after you know, starting off the back nine uh, in, in such poor form that he quit. He, whether he literally tore up his scorecard or he didn't, he went off the go, walked off the golf course without playing the 12th hole. Uh, and that was in the third round. So like so many who preceded him and followed him, he was frustrated with the old course. He was mystified by the old course. You know, I mean, this is Bobby Jones. So six years later, he had definitely matured as a person with his golf game. You know, he was clearly the best player in golf, professional or amateur. And yeah, he engineered the ultimate bounce back in 1927. Shot an incredible, well, I use that word again. How about sensational? 68 in the first round. It was the first time he had ever broken 70 in a major and then played really steady golf after that, 72, 73, 72, won by six shots. And um, the way things were back then, the crowd gathered him on their shoulders and took him back into town and triumphed. And, you know, what I felt was that was when the mutual love affair between Bobby Jones and St. Andrews had begun. And ultimately, he was awarded the greatest honor that St. Andrews can award someone. And that was, uh, you know, basically being a, a freeman of St. Andrews that had only happened to one other American, and that was Benjamin Franklin. So this is how St. Andrews felt about Bobby Jones. And then what Bobby Jones felt about St. Andrews, he said in his speech, accepting that night in 1958, my favorite quote ever about St. Andrews from anyone. He said, quote, I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrews, and I would still have had a rich and full life. That's Bobby Jones, and that was our first moment in winning in spectacular fashion in 1927. I sure love that. I know George Pepper loves that quote, too. I think he used that in his column in the upcoming summer issue that we talked about. I guess by the time you hear this, you may have already gotten the summer issue and, and read that. But uh, a lovely quote. Of course, that was Bobby Jones's second Open Championship win. He had won the year before as well. Uh, and then he went on to win in 1930 to be a three-time winner of the Open Championship. Moving on to 1960, and we are going to attribute this moment to the king, Arnold Palmer. 1960 was an absolutely pivotal year for the Open Championship. 
it had fallen so far in prestige among tournaments that it could scarcely be considered a major championship anymore in terms of the quality of the field. That was because it was so arduous still to get to the Open Championship. They paid terribly low prize money back in the day, and they had an archaic qualifying system, which still had people coming over, and you had to play a couple of rounds just to get into the main tournament. That's the way it had been for a long time, but American stars at that point said, I'm not going to go through this. You know, we've got enough solid, great tournaments on our own shores that, you know, that's just too much of a waste of time. And Arnold Palmer, in a discussion with Mark McCormick of International Management Group fame and, and his good friend and pal, they had a discussion and basically Arnold came away with the idea that you can't be a great player unless you go play in the British Open. And Arnold decided that year it was at St. Andrews and it was the 100th anniversary of the first playing of the Open Championship. He was going to go over there. And uh, he did. He made the sacrifices. And, you know, here it was. He was the U.S. Open champion. He was the most popular player and the best player in golf. And he was going to try his luck at the British Open. Man, oh, man, he came close. It was an incredible event. Man, I'm using that word a lot, but what do you say about Opens at St. Andrews? And um, no, he came close and he didn't get it done. He lost by one shot to Australia's Kel Nagel. But fantastic that he did go over to make the effort. That kick-started the Open Championship as a real major again. And that's why we, we remember 1960 most, not for Kel Nagel winning it, but for Arnold Palmer, the king of golf at that point, to go over and compete and say, this is a really important tournament. Yeah, I'd have to say since then, it, it is, you know, a lot of people do consider it the most important tournament uh, of the majors to win, the most significant, um, just being the oldest and, and having the most history. And, you know, Arnold Palmer is a, has a lot to do with that uh, in the minds of Americans, certainly uh, holding on to that idea. And like you said, he didn't win in 1960, but he went back and he won the next two right after that. So he won at Birkdale and won at Troon back to back for his two open championships as well. Not to disparage some of the guys that, you know, uh, Peter Thompson and Bobby Locke uh, that won a bunch of those while the Americans weren't around, but any major championship wants to have the best field. Any of those winners wants to beat the best players in the world. And Arnold Palmer put the Open Championship back on that pedestal as the world's major championship, the oldest major championship, and, uh, and, and the respect that it deserved. In 1964, our next moment uh, sort of involves Arnold Palmer, I guess, um, but it's more about Tony Lima. What can you tell us about 1964? Okay, one of the things that I can't tell you about 1964, because even with my love of history, I've never quite been able to figure out why Arnold Palmer chose not to play in the Open that year. As much as he valued St. Andrews and he had won the Open in 61 and 62, maybe we've got a listener out there who's a historian that might be able to enlighten us a little bit. But he didn't play that year. What he did do was he recommended to Tony Lima 
that Lima hire his usual caddy for the tournament, a local named Tip Anderson. And, you know, Tony Lima, not many people of our generation remember him well, because tragically he was lost in a plane crash in 1966. But in 1964, he was one of the best players on tour. He had already won three times on the PGA Tour that year. And really a bit of a last minute late entry to the Open. He had never even been to Europe, never even played a Lynx course. But he had Tip Anderson on the bag. And he had a swagger, a confidence, and tremendous talent. So, you know, Tony Lima went out, shot 73 uh, on a day where the wind was really high. Then 68, 68, 70 to beat Jack Nicholas by five shots. And of course, we know his nickname, Al, Champagne Tony Lima. And the reason for that, well, he enjoyed a good time, okay? But mostly it was because he sent the writers 40 bottles of champagne. He would send champagne to the press tent with every victory. And of course, the writers didn't forget that gesture. So that was Champagne Tony's Lima major moment in 1964. His only major win, and we can only speculate how many he may have won. Um, you mentioned it earlier, two years later, uh, he died in a plane crash leaving the PGA championship that year, um, which was at Firestone. And gosh, that I, I didn't know that story. I just found that in my research. That's incredibly tragic, but a, a great story from the 64 championship, obviously involving him. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Arnold Palmer, uh, by choosing not to play, wound up you know, with uh, Tip Anderson uh, as his caddy and uh, helped him all the way around to understand the nuances of the old course. In 1970, it looked like it may or may not be Jack Nicklaus's time to win the Open Championship at St. Andrews. In fact, it looked a lot like it probably wasn't going to be his time and we had come so close. However, as Joe will explain, uh, we got a a second Open Championship and a first at St. Andrews from the Golden Bear in 1970. 1970, Jack Nicholas was clearly the best player in golf by that point. He had had a little bit of a drought for a couple of years in majors, but he'd already won the Open at Muirfield in 1966, taking a share of Masters, U.S. Opens, PGAs. But there was something else about Jack being at St. Andrews, which is that he once said, if you're going to be a player that people will remember, you have to win the Open at St. Andrews. Well, this was Jack's time, perhaps, and he played great in that tournament. But maybe one player was just a little bit better. And that was Doug Sanders, another guy who had won a whole bunch of times on the PGA Tour. Very popular, snazzy dresser with all kinds of colors and patterns in his clothes and his shoes but a tremendous shot maker. Well, Sanders came to the 72nd hole needing just a three-foot putt to win the Open Championship at St. Andrews, and he pushed it. I mean, it was a bad push. His right hand came off the club. I, you know, it was almost a yippee miss. It was that bad. So tragic for Doug Sanders, relief maybe not elation, but a relief for Jack Nicholas, And it meant they were going to a playoff and 18 holes the next day. And it was close. It was close all the way to the end. 
Jack uh, had a one-shot lead, one hole to play, and decided, I'm going for this. And Jack, almost like Superman in a cape, he took off his sweater just before the tee shot at 18, crushed it. 360 yards, it went over the green, rolled up the slope, almost out of bounds to where the RNA clubhouse is. But he kept it in bounds, chipped down the hill really well to seven feet, and sunk the birdie putt. That clinched the Open Championship for him in 1970. Well, I mean, we've seen Jack raise the putter at the 86 Masters, you know, at the 75 Masters. We know how he celebrates. Well, this one, he flung the putter up in the air. Goodness, it almost hit Sanders on the head coming down. You can see him ducking and holding his head in his hands. Jack apologized later. The moment got to him. But Jack accomplished what he wanted to do. He won his Open at St. Andrews. Back when they had the 18-hole playoff, of, I just had to relook it up to refresh my memory, and now I, I guess it's a three-hole aggregate uh, if they go into a playoff. I used to always love the drama of having to see an entire extra round being played at some of these championships. As you mentioned, the pressure that you experienced on the first tee playing St. Andrews, imagine you have a three-foot putt to win the Open Championship at St. Andrews and think about what that pressure must have been like as our man Doug Sanders was lining up for his three-footer there. The only comparable aspect in tragedy was Tom Watson in 2009 at Turnbury, where if that eight iron hadn't gotten that terrible bounce um, and then chose to putt and, and then missed another putt and he would have been the oldest major championship winner at age 59. It's a tough call between how hard I was rooting for Watson and how badly people felt for Sanders. So that's, that's golf history. Jack was of the people who won at St. Andrews. He went on to win in 1978 as well. So he won two consecutive open championships at St. Andrews. The others to accomplish that feat, J.H. Taylor in 1895 and 1900. James Braid won the next two, 1905, 1910. Nicholas in 70 and 78. And Tiger Woods in 2000 and 2005. Al, I'll conclude my remarks about Jack Nicholas at St. Andrews. In his 1978 win, it wasn't anywhere near as dramatic. Um, he beat, ultimately beat, New Zealander Simon Owen, not one of the big names in golf by two, but 1978 Open Championship at St. Andrews is memorable for me because Jack won it wearing the most beautiful sweater I have ever seen before or since. It was an argyle diamond pattern with navy blue, sky blue, and white, and he was fit then, the blonde hair flowing, and I vowed one day I would own a, a version of that sweater. And it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Cashmere Argyle in that pattern. But uh, I've still got a few days left in me. And maybe I'll, I'll encounter that sweater again. I think you may be able to find that at Julian's on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. As I, oh, as I sport my UNC. 
pull over. I will here. make a special trip for that, Al. Yeah, they they're known uh, for their argyle. That's for sure. Our next moment came in 1984. The aforementioned Tom Watson going for a three-peat at the Open Championship in a duel for the ages with Seve Balaceros. Boy, Al, you have got that right. I mean, what a titanic duel. You've got probably the most spectacular shot maker in golf, Seve Ballesteros, who had won the Open Championship previously in 79 against Tom Watson. Um, again, you know, you got two guys that can get it up and down from a ball washer, as they say. Uh, incredible ball striker. And it came down to the final two holes. You know, the, uh, talk about the classic debates of all time. And I mentioned previously whether Tom Watson should have hit eight iron or nine iron at Turnbury in 2009. He had a similar dilemma 25 years before. He's in the 17th fairway, the road hole. He and Seve are tied. And he's debating between two iron. Can you remember the days where pros actually had to hit two irons into par fours or three iron? And he chose two iron, flushed it. It was just too strong. It went over the back of the green and that crazy road hole went over the green onto that pebble road. The wall is right there. And he was, you know, pretty close, pretty close to the wall and just in a bad position, couldn't get it up and down. And, um, you know, they went to 18 and Seve's up by one. And Seve makes a 15-foot birdie putt. And when Seve celebrates, there were a few celebrations like it. I mean, he had that dazzling smile, the fist pump, the little jig. You know, it was, it was everything. And Tom just couldn't catch him at that point. So, you know, there was a, a lot of history on the line there for three straight opens, um, for a sixth open title overall. But... It wasn't Watson's year. It was Seve's year. And, you know, just a fantastic tournament. Yeah, as with a lot of these, going back and, and prep for our conversation, you can find a lot of these moments on YouTube if you search uh, for the various years and the Opens and the people involved. Um, there's a great video I, I watched of, of all of this, what Joe just broke down and uh, seeing Seve hit that curler from 15 feet. Uh, you had Bernard Longer was in there, tight, riding along with these guys. Ian Baker Finch was tied for the lead going into the final round. So it really set up for just an epic Sunday there at St. Andrews, and, and it did not disappoint. We are moving on to 1990 for our next moment. Uh, and I, I think from right about this, it was before he was a sir, but Sir Nick Faldo, uh, his opportunity at St. Andrews came to fruition in magnificent fashion. In 1990, you had a situation, Al, that is a golf fan's dream. Not unlike 1984, but 1990, you had the two clear best players in the world going head-to-head -head over the final two rounds at St. Andrews for an Open Championship. You know, Nick Faldo was the co-favorite and, uh, you know, Greg Norman was the world number one, but 
Faldo had won the Masters, defending his Masters crown, tied for third uh, at Medina at the U.S. Open in June. Norman had seemingly won just about everything else, but you had, uh, you know, an open champion in Greg Norman in 1986. You had Faldo, an open champion in 1987. This was an epic, epic battle. But in the third round, uh, to set the stage for what happened six years later at the Masters, Faldo was Faldo. He shot a 67 and Norman couldn't handle the heat, shot 76. So that was one of those tournaments that purists praise Faldo for his absolutely stunning brilliance in the golf he played. But there was no wind that week. It was sunny. So he had beautiful photographs, but the course wasn't as testing as it could have and should have been. So Faldo had a score of 199, record-breaking, uh, after three rounds. And then kind of coasted at the end, final round 71, five shot win, record-breaking aggregate of 18 under par. So the final round drama wasn't anything quite like, you know, the great St. Andrews moments, but the sustained excellence for four rounds from Nick Faldo qualified as one of the great moments in history at St. Andrews Opens. Domination, really. Um talk about a five shot victory in the open championship. And like you said, the, the wind changes everything out there completely. When it lays down, uh, it can be a course that, that people can really get after, uh, as Nick did as another player did that we'll mention later in our moments, uh, in dominant fashion. But, uh, before we get to that, we're going to take a pit stop in 1995 and talk about one of the great celebrations in golf. Uh, may Perhaps forgotten because it came from a player who didn't ultimately win, but the stage that it was on uh, is, you, you can't script it, uh, this moment that happened with Constantino Rocca. Well, 1995 was a certainly an unusual year for the Open Championship of St. Andrews because you had two very unlikely players that wound up in a playoff. John Daly, you know, there was the guy who was the folk hero of American golf in 1991 when he came out of nowhere as the ninth alternate to win the PGA championship. He won a tournament or two in the years after that, but then really became quickly kind of a novelty act. He wasn't contending very often. He was still getting into trouble on and off the golf course. And then 1995 came along at St. Andrews and we were reminded on what a genius talent John Daly really was when he brought his powers to bear. That was a year that wind and weather played a role. Six under was the best that the best players in the world could do for four rounds of golf. And Daly got in early, whacking that Wilson Whale driver. Uh, which nobody bought, but <laughs> it worked for him in that one tournament and uh, had the crew neck Reebok kind of uh, almost Easter green top on. But I mean, everybody was wearing extra clothing. It was chilly. But yeah, the story, even more so than Daly's win, was how things 
arrived at a playoff in 1995 on the 72nd hole when the Italian player, Costantino Rocca, did an excellent drive needing birdie to make this playoff and then did what we've all done in that situation and totally flubbed his chip. An absolute duff. I mean, laid the sod over it, whatever you want to call it. It was awful. Oh, man, you felt for him. Every pro has been there at least once. Uh, those of us amateurs have been there, unfortunately, a bunch. So that left him with anywhere from a 50 to 65 footer by most measures. Had to come out of that deep depression right there in the front of the green, the Valley of Sin. Almost a hopeless situation to try to hole a putt to tie and make this playoff. And what does he do? Of course, he gets up there and strokes the putt, and it's taken a while, and it gets up the hill and out of the Valley of the Sin and drops in the cup for birdie. Well, Roca, of course, and everybody else went cuckoo. And Roca flopped to the ground, belly flop, pounding his arms and his hands. Pow, 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 pow. I mean, he had just sunk the most improbable shot, perhaps, in St. Andrew's Open histories. Well, he didn't win the playoff. John Daly did, but he gave us a moment that was one of the top 10 of all time at St. Andrew's Opens. That's another good video. It, it's a hilarious reaction, but just amazing. The, the putt he had to make from the Valley of Sin. What are you supposed to do? I, I don't know. I would lose my mind as well in that situation. So that was a really fun one to go back and look at. I mean, that's, that's uh, in basketball terms, that's like a 35, 40 footer at the buzzer, you know, to, to win the game. Oh yeah. Uh, Constantino didn't win, but he gave us that moment. The first of our, our three left on this list uh, comes in the year 2000 and the rock star Tiger Woods shattering records like only Tiger can. Well, there have been a few experts in the game that have weighed in over the last, you know, five, 10 years that said statistically and by the eye test, no one in the history of golf has ever played the game better than Tiger Woods in the year 2000. You can take the fact that he won the U.S. Open by 15 shots at Pebble Beach in June as evidence. You can look at the PGA Championship that he sank every enormous putt he needed to to beat Bob May in a playoff in August as evidence. But at the oldest course on earth, at the most significantly impactful golf course on earth in golf's oldest major, they were extra exclamation points with what he did at St. Andrews that year. Yes, for a brief period, a flickering moment, we thought David Duvall might actually have a chance to catch and surpass Tiger. But no, Tiger had an extra gear and he floored it, pulling away and winning by eight shots in a performance. You think about the bunkers at St. Andrews. They were all over the place. And Tiger was never in a single bunker the entire week. What blew my mind uh, in a subtle way 
was how Tiger approached the drivable par four 12th hole where if you missed your drive, you could get into some trouble as Ernie Els did hitting into a gorse bush. But Tiger understood that there were a few greens that the proper spot to miss was not in front. As a matter of fact, at the 12th, it was behind the green. That left you with an uphill putt or chip back much easier. Well, that's what Tiger accomplished. He was so smart in his course management in addition to his execution it's no wonder he won the 2000 Open by eight shots. Really remarkable and 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 stunning. Really, the stat or fact that you mentioned that he didn't hit any bunker all week at St Andrews. I mean, there's 112 of them out there, and he found a way to miss every single one every single day. Uh, he was also the the only champion at St Andrews to score in the 60s in every single round en route to that 19 under as the only player to do that that really that should tell you all you need to know about his epic win in in the year 2000 in 2010 we had another young budding superstar chasing glory at St Andrews by the name of Rory McIlroy well 2010 Rory McIlroy was 21 years old, fresh off his first U.S. PGA Tour win. So he was definitely one of the up-and-comers, but he had had potential superstar written all over him at the age of 16, shot 61 at Royal Portrush. So all he did on that first Thursday was blister the old course with a nine under par 63 the lowest opening round in the history of the Open Championship and tied for the best score ever in a major. You know, Tiger had done some incredible things as a 21-year-old himself, but this was best of the best in the history of the major championships and the Open Championship. So it was just an astounding achievement. Now, again, that was just the first round. And I was sitting in the old course hotel as that happened, owned by the Kohler family. And Herb Kohler had gone and played golf that morning at the course that they owned, the Duke's course. And he and his entourage came into the room where I was sitting and had just gotten back. And he said, what's going on in the tournament? I said, Mr. K, Rory McIlroy just shot a 63. Oh, it's those great eyebrows of Herb's. Rose, the smile on his face, his face lit up. I mean, that was a special moment. You impressed Herb Kohler like that. And I mentioned Herb for one more reason, Al. And um, and that's because he gave me the second favorite quote I know about St. Andrews. After Bobby Jones talking about his life and his experiences at St. Andrews, Herb Kohler and I were talking about the old course in St. Andrews one day. And he said, you know what's amazing about that old course in St. Andrews? He said, people were playing golf in St. Andrews before they realized the world was round. And I let that sink in. Columbus, 1492. Golf at St. Andrews, 1457. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, you know, in the end, um, it was a very interesting tournament. 
in 2010. Louis Osthuizen, uh, not a big name uh, at that point, but a phenomenal talent, dominated. I mean, he really did. He hit the driver as well as anyone has ever driven for four days over the old course, including Tiger. But it was Louis' tournament, but people don't remember it quite as well because it just wasn't a dramatic, exciting finish. But Rory's first round as a 21-year-old certainly sticks in, in many memory banks. And he would go on to win in 2014 at Royal Liverpool. So his moment came later for the Open Championship. He's very similar to the subject of our final moment, which came in 2010, and the fact that we're, he's one major away from joining that elite list to win the Grand Slam, all four majors, just as Jordan Spieth is. And he came to St. Andrews in 2015, as you put it, he was an exalted company. And why is that? Well, only Ben Hogan in 1953, Arnold Palmer in 1960, Jack Nicholas in 1972, and Tiger Woods in 2002 had captured the Masters and the U.S. Open in the same year. Those are the first two legs of the never-achieved professional Grand Slam. That is exalted company. Hogan, Palmer, Nicholas Woods, and Jordan Spieth in 2015. Now, we arrive at the Open Championship at St. Andrews. Jordan Spieth with a chance to join that group and then possibly win the PGA to win the Grand Slam. 2015 was a wild tournament. Modern green speeds, even at St. Andrews, had gotten quicker and quicker, and they had to stop play. I mean, sacrilege to purists. They had to stop play in the third round because the wind was blowing so hard, the ball wouldn't stay still on the greens. And I'm thinking, come on, there's no lightning. This is just wind. You're supposed to have wind in Scotland at St. Andrews at the Open Championship. But again, modern maintenance, uh, the rules were the rules and they had to take a long break. So some felt that uh, Spieth possibly lost a little bit of that mojo, but you had an incredible leaderboard. Jason Day, his chief rival in 2015 for, for greatness was right in the hunt. In the end, Spieth came very close to joining that exalted company made a 50-footer at the 16th hole in the final round. But, man, the road hole, he could do no better than bogey, missing an eight-footer and, uh, and couldn't get it done at the last, couldn't birdie it. And in the end, he missed the three-man playoff by one shot, tied with Jason Day. And it's great trivia. A lot of people remember Zach Johnson wound up winning the Open at St. Andrews, there's another cool double, a guy that's a Masters winner and then to win the Open at St. Andrews. But man, oh man, it's great trivia for folks to try to say, okay, who else, what other two players were in that playoff with Zach Johnson? I was just thinking that. I was just so thinking that. That's the thing that's a little tougher to remember, but as a great moment, it was Jordan Spieth going after history. Let me test your trivia then. Who Do you recall who was in that playoff? All right, I'm going to be honest with you, Al. 
I remembered Mark Leishman, uh, who really had the best chance to close it out and didn't. And then I was um, uh, back and forth with, uh, you know, I'm not really remembering the third guy. And then it hit me, but I wasn't positive. And I looked it up and I'm like, well, of course, Mr. Runner-Up, a guy that knows St. Andrew's whole course, Louis Oosthuizen. And Louis, five, six, seven years later, you know, uh, was like runner-up in every major. So, um, yeah, that cast of characters is a little bit forgotten. Uh, Zach Johnson deserved the win, but um, Jordan Spieth came oh so close. And Louis would have won it. That would have been another back-to-back at St. Andrews in the Open after he won in 2010. So maybe that would have replaced this moment on the list had that come to fruition. But uh, like you said, Spieth, as, as many have, had his hopes dashed there at the road hole. That will do it for the top 10. Joe, who was on the outside looking in? Were there any moments looking back at the Open at St. Andrews that didn't make it in the, the top 10 but, but was right there for you? Yeah, you know, when we talked about moments, Al, and you said this at the beginning of the show today, um, you know, do you look at uh, a, a performance, like a cumul- cumulative performance a- as a victory is something important, or is a moment more fleeting, a snapshot, something that happened just so quickly, the way Costantino Roca sank that birdie putt from 65 feet and, you know, banged the ground? You know, one that I was thinking about was Sam Sneed winning at St. Andrews in one of his only attempts at the Open Championship in 1946. The legend and lore goes that the taxi driver bringing him into town, Sneed took his first look at the old course, didn't realize it was even a golf course. He said, what's that old, uh, you know, uh, abandoned uh, lot of a you know, and the taxi driver was none too happy with Sneed and said, ah, that's the old course. So not a great first impression on Sam Sneed. And yet, again, a brilliant player who won it, only only tried the Open Championship three times, and he won it in, in great fashion in 1946. So, you know, definitely a handful of other moments. Uh, but that was the only one I think that that challenged uh, in my way of thinking for the top 10. Yeah. And you talked about your uh, favorite quotes and some of the most favorite quote or famous quotes about uh, St. Andrews. And maybe that's the most infamous one out there from Sam Snead. That's, that's gotta be right up there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'd love to hear your memories uh, and the moments that you'll remember forever from the open championship being at St. Andrews as we head into this 30th playing overall there at the home of golf and, and 150th open, feel free to, to send us in, email us. You can reach us at materials at linksmagazine.com if you want to send us an email with your favorite moments. All right, Joe, thank you again for joining me today, sharing your, your moments with us. Love to go back through memory lane and, and walk through the history there at the old course. Another person will add a significant moment in their life and in the history of the game of golf this coming July there at the old course. I can't wait to see it. And I can't wait to be with you again as we continue on this journey. The rest of season 11, look forward to, to picking your brain even more as we move along here. 
Al, it was a pleasure being with you today. And uh, there's no better stroll down memory lane than taking in St. Andrews. So, um, you know, whatever topics we encounter next week, I look forward to it. But uh, boy, oh boy, this was a fun start to this season. Real quick, who's your pick? Give me a guy to win this year. Uh, at the Open Championship of St. Andrews? Correct. Man. Uh, let's go with Rory, Rory McElroy. All right. I like John Rahm. I'm not going too far off the map with my pick, but you got to plod your way around the old course, and, and he can do that. Well, Rory knew how to get it done at 21, at least for one round. Wound up finishing third in that one, and he's just starting to play well again. Either way, it's going to be great. All right, Joe. Thank you again.